Welcome to Que Pasa HSIs, a podcast dedicated to everything Hispanic serving institutions. I'm your host, Dr. Gina Ann Garcia, bringing you the news on what's happening in HSIs. Join us as we explore the history and evolution of HSIs, culturally relevant and liberatory practices, current and emerging research with HSIs, and the policies that shape servingness. Episode 8. Saludos, HSI familia, and welcome to Que Pasa HSIs, where we talk about all things HSIs. And today we are going to talk about it, all of it. But first, let us acknowledge that this week's episode is being released on the week of Dia de Muertos, a time when some Latinxes remember and honor their loved ones who have passed away. The day largely originates from Mexico, but is observed in different ways across Latin America. During this day, most often celebrated on November 1st, it is common to build ofrendas or altars to have that have flowers, candles, and other decor, and where pictures of the deceased are displayed along with their favorite food and beverages. There are many variations to the ofrendas and the festivities, often varying from pueblo to pueblo, and there is no universal way to observe Dia de Muertos. We have seen a rise in observation of the Day of the Dead here in the United States, which is great, but if you are honoring the day on your campus, please remember to be intentional by bringing in the voices and knowledge of people who have traditionally celebrated Dia de Muertos. Today's show is an exciting one, and we have lots to learn. I had the pleasure of speaking with two of my favorite people, Dr. Yolanda Cataño, who is the inaugural executive director of the Alliance of Hispanic Serving Institution Educators, or ASI, and Dr. Angel de Jesus Gonzalez. He, who is a postdoctoral research associate at U University of Southern California. The topic of today's podcast is queering HSIs and serving LGBTQIA Latinx students at HSIs, which is a topic that these scholars have been advancing. This dynamic duo is extending notions of servingness to queer and trans Latinx people at HSIs. In this episode, we talk about the importance of centering the intersectional identities of Latinxes at HSIs and share findings from their not just one or two, but three articles they have published about querying HSIs, all available in the show notes. This episode is about so much more than querying HSIs, however, as Dr. Cataño and Dr. Gonzalez are brilliant scholars and practitioners who talk about the complexities of data-driven decision-making at community colleges and talk about institutional and state-level policies that affect serviness. Through storytelling, they drop so much intersectional, practical, and empirical knowledge about HSIs and servingness on us. Doctora Cataño is a recent graduate and newly minted doctor from San Diego State University's EDD and Community College Leadership Program. Congrats! Woohoo! I had the honor of serving on her dissertation committee. She earned her MA in Sociological Practice and BA in Women's Studies at California State University, San Marcos. Dr. Gonzalez received an EDD in Community College Leadership and MA in Post-Secondary Educational Leadership with an emphasis in student affairs from San Diego State University and has a BA in Environmental Science and Spanish from Whittier College. All that to say, HSIs chose them as all of their degrees are from HSIs or what we may call three-time HSI grads. Yolanda's community advocacy engagement and engagement as an advisor for the Imperial Imperial Valley LGBT Resource Center has been instrumental in bridging her commitment to scholarship and her comunidad. 
Her research advances equity, social justice, and diversity with a focus on the LGBTQIA plus community and Latinxes and HSIs. Angel's research includes examining and exploring the conditions, experiences, and outcomes in community colleges for minoritized students with an emphasis on LGBTQIA plus and Latinx students, also Latinx leadership and racial equity policy implementation in the community college context. They are self-identified first-generation queer Joto Latinx scholar who engages with his scholarship through his own lived experiences. I have known both Yoli and Angel since they were graduate students at San Diego State University, where I met them when I visited SDSU to give a talk to post-secondary educational leadership community. We have been mutually standing each other ever since, as I have watched them with admiration for the heart and soul that they bring to their research and practice. Throughout the episode, I felt very connected to them, calling them my soul siblings, as our stories and journeys towards servingness are similar in many ways, yet still distinct. I hope you will enjoy the brilliance that emerged in this episode. All righty, so let's go ahead and get started with today's show. Yolanda Yangel, thank you for taking the time to be here today on Que Pasa HSIs, where we talk about all things HSIs. But before we talk about what's up with HSIs, let's talk about both of you. So because we have two guests today, we're going to go back and forth. Um, and, and, you know, some of these questions y'all are, are welcome to both talk and other ones you won't. But I definitely want to hear about both of you and about your journey. So and, and the listeners want to know, because this 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 um, podcast is about higher ed and about HSI. So I want to know both of your journeys into higher ed, through higher ed, and also your, your consciousness around servingness. So first, let's start with that. Tell me about your higher ed journey and how you came to be higher education practitioners and now scholars. I'll start first. Um, so yes, um, I was born and raised in Mexicali, Baja California, Mexico. So being in that border, you know, binational experience that I had growing up, it really provided a different perspective. I, I came to a different school. So I was like in Mexico, you know, a couple of times, and then I would come here to the United States, depending on like the jobs that my dad had. So I didn't officially come to the United States until I was 13. So thinking about the language barriers, thinking about that, it, you know, immigrant experience. And I was lucky enough, you know, to come, you know, and have a dad that was able to, you know, provide that status for me in terms of like being, being, being documented in this country. And so given that time frame, I was 13 dealing with it and dealing with the difference in educational systems. I always tell people, right? Like when you come here and the first time, you know, you're dealing with, oh, I, I already learned about biology in, in my school, right? So cuando llegué aquí and they were taking physical science, I was like, but I learned this already. Like, but I, but I was still taking those classes because I, I had to learn new terminology based off of like the English language, right? So, and then that led to, you know, my, you know, getting enrolled into high school. And I always say this because it's true when we think about mentorship and the importance of mentorship, the professors and the role that certain key people have in our lives. I will always thank my AVID professor and how fortunate enough I was to be an AVID. And we always think about those successes that students have. So those very ones that can, you know, do well in school. And I was lucky enough to have done really well in school. And so I was reached from that avid professor. And then that avid professor was like, Yolanda, go, you know, to school, blah, blah, blah. Cause I was going to get married at the age of 17. I thought it was cute. 
that. So I didn't actually, you know, end up doing it and I got accepted to several schools. I ended up choosing the school that I ended up going to, which was Cal State San Marcos, which I got my undergrad in women's or my bachelor's degree in women's studies and my master's degree in sociology from Cal State San Marcos. But again, because of, you know, the HSI-ness of it. So when we talk about the consciousness of Hispanic serving institutions, I mean, the reason why I attended, you know, Cal State San Marcos, the first thing that we noted there, or I noted there as a student was the statue of Cesar Chavez, right? It was predominantly Latina. You have to understand that when you come from a border town, it is more than 92% here, 93% Latinos, Mexican in where I'm from. So I couldn't make a transition to UCSD, even if I was admitted to UCSD, because something like that would have entirely provided, you know, not, not conditions of learning for me, right? So when we think about that consciousness of servingness, I think how state San Marcos afforded me a lot of tools, a lot of relationships in terms of the peers that I got to meet, you know, Mecha, the establishment of Mecha. And so these connections that allowed me to thrive and succeed in these, you know, environments and people who were dealing with the same things that I was, right? You know, economically, we were all in the same boat. We didn't have money. We were broke college students. We we're supporting each other, right? We didn't, you know, we, we, we thought we were cute if we went to go eat at Applebee's. Like that was our, you know, fashion, you know, like our bougie dinners. But so these are the types of things that we consider about the consciousness, the experiences, um, the compoundedness of identities when we talk about also that exploration for me in women's studies, right? And how I came in tune to also with like my queerness, right? And the beginning of it. Um, and so it was really, really important um, in the transition for this journey, but I'll stop there. Thank you. Okay, thank you. And thank you for already getting the serviness. We'll come, we'll come back to that, but let's hear from Angel first, your journey into and through higher ed. Gracias so much, Dr. for having us here. Um, for me, right, I, I grew up in South Central, Southeast Los Angeles. I'm son to Guadalupe Miguel Angel from Sinaloa, Guanajuato. And I'm first generation queer Latinx photo who, whose work is really rooted in that, right? Like my epistemic framing is rooted in growing up in South Central, Southgate, Bell Gardens, Maywood, Downey, like those community areas. Um, for me, it's always been a predominantly black and brown community. And I don't really knew that there was differentiating like type of communities or even that that changed across um, institutions of higher learning because I didn't even know about college until like my junior year of high school. So for me, all my schooling um, was really just like doing what was asked for me. Um, it wasn't until high school that I get into thinking about, well, what is this college thing people think of, right? And it happened because I had a regular English class and next to my regular English class was AP English. And now I know that sorting, right? Like our class was deemed as the class that like, if we're lucky, we're gonna graduate high school. And then AP was like, oh, these are college ready students. And every time we would come to that class, um, one of my friends, <clears throat> she would start asking me things regarding college preparation that I had no idea what the hell she was talking about. I was like, girl, you're speaking another language. She's like, have you done your SAT? Have you created your GRE account? Have you, I mean, your college board account? And I was like, what are you talking about, girl? Like, I, I have no idea what any of these things because my knowledge was, well, you go to school and you graduated and you just move to the next tier, right? That's what we did from kinder to elementary, from elementary to middle school, from middle school to high school. So I heard this college university kind of, being talked about, but I know there was a whole process that started 
already three years before I was even thinking about it. So she's the one that really got me to think about like higher education and what was I going to do. And it kind of got me like to get my shit together. So I started thinking about, well, what, what do I need to do? And in California, um, we have these things called the A through G requirements. And we, <clears throat> part of that was like making sure you have certain classes, right? And for example, like I was taking my senior year Spanish one, two during the day and then Spanish three, four during the night because I needed two years of foreign language. And in my head now, I'm like, I should have been taking AP Spanish. I'm fluent. I've always been fluent, right? And like, I could have gotten college credits, but no one told me. No one saw me as someone who was college ready. I wasn't an avid. I wasn't in honors. I was just like your regular, regular student, right? Like I, I wasn't the best. I wasn't like performing the worst, but I was just there doing what I needed to do. And I landed <clears throat> at Whittier College, which is my alma mater, Go Poets. Um, because I was in yearbook and my yearbook advisors were uh, Whittier College alumni and we took our senior pictures there. So that was like kind of the first campus that I've ever been to. So here I am, 17, I've never gone to a college campus and the first campus I go to is Whittier College. And then I have these people telling me, you should apply there. And in my head, I was like, oh no, this is a private school. Like I like private is synonymous for me with like wealth or whiteness, right? And like, which is not too far-fetched. <laughs> So for me, I was <laughs> right, like, right, right. Yeah. So I was kind of like, I don't know. And they're like, no, you should just do it. So I ended up applying to Whittier. I applied to uh, four CSUs and four UCs because, because I had a fee waiver. I, I, I Because I was low income, I'd qualified to like apply to free um, these, these campuses for free because again, each application costs money. So that's how I ended up at Whittier College. <clears throat> and I had to stay local because my parents didn't let me apply anywhere else because the expectation is that I was close to home. So even though I lived in BG and Whittier was 20 minutes away, when I landed at Whittier, it was like a whole other world, even though it is an HSI and we can talk about that. But when I landed there, it was the first time I really kind of questioned like my belongingness in spaces because I wasn't like the rest of my, 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 my classmates. I ended up living on campus because my yearbook advisors were like, well, if you can go at, like far away, you have to live on campus. So I lied to my parents and I told them, I get more financial aid if I live on campus, which technically you do because it's adjusted for, you know, cost of living and whatnot. Or, so I ended up living on campus, even though it was 20 minutes away, because I wanted to have like the college experience, right? Like I wanted to have that. And um, and that's really when I first start thinking about myself, my identity and the work that I want to do um, as I end up being super involved in every kind of club and org. I was in the newspaper. I worked in our cultural center. I was in the fraternity. I was an RA. And like that really solidified that, oh, I want to go into this thing we call student affairs and higher education. And that's kind of when I start my higher education kind of career path as an undergrad, um, doing these kind of student engagement activities that are high retention um, activities for students of color or students from minoritized identities. Awesome. Okay. So I'm, of course, I'm interested now that you both talked about, you are enrolled at uh, HSIs um, and Yolanda, you talked a little bit about like, you know, it felt like, it felt like an HSI, <laughs> um, but uh, Whittier, I don't know. I don't know Angel, if you had that same experience, but talk to me a little bit about that. Like when y'all were undergrads, um, cause I will say your journeys into, to your institutions, um, 
generally follow the research, right? The research tells us Latino students are going to stay close to home. You both said that was the case, right? Um, that HSI or Latino students, one of the intersectional identities is also income, right? Low income um, in many cases, right? So y'all y'all had that, um, you know, sort of like aligning with the with the research. Um, but we're going to get into the ways in which, uh, you know, the institution didn't align um, with y'all in, in, in a few minutes. But tell me a little bit about serving this. Like, did you know you were at an HSI? and how? And if not, then when did your journey towards servingness and understanding um, HSI and your HSI consciousness uh, begin? I think that's a really great question. So I can probably break it down in that, again, like seeing the statue of Cesar Chavez and then the amount of speakers that and, you know, that we were exposed to. So I'll also credit the Women's Studies Association and the club and the organizations that exist at the college or the university and Mecha, right? These were crucial to, and we and we note this also in the research, right? The importance, and I note this also in my dissertation, the importance that programs and services, particularly clubs and organizations have on the impact, you know, in creating a culture that is, you know, that is serving of, you know, Latinx students. So for me, getting involved with Mecha, like they had Mecha dances on an ongoing basis, right? So it it didn't take me away from like my culture. It completely exposed me to other, pe other people, right? Like I met Oaxaqueños, I met, you know, people from Mexico. Like it wasn't just, you know, people from Queramos Norteños and the music, the vibe, the language. It just, it was a beautiful, you know, connection and then at the same time we also had connection with the community college so there were classes we didn't take at the university we took them at palomar college so palomar was also our way if friends for example i think i took a um, physical science class actually too or so it was a science class that i had to take and i took it because they didn't have it at cal state and then that exposed me to like capoeira salsa bachata and i was like oh my god right so having all of these niches of, you know, where you can have like some creativity, some connection allowed, you know, the sort of freedom to exist and also created, you know, the sense of belonging, if you will. And I will say, I didn't know that it was an HSI, but I knew that there were a lot of Latino students. When I got involved with theater in particular, it was when I really understood that the college was a Hispanic serving institution. And that was the first time, so I'll explain why. Um, I had a professor who did a, um, a was he, they, I got selected to partake um, as one of the protagonists in the lead play that was predominantly in Nahuatl and Mixteco. This was the first time that they had done it. They, they brought people with from the community to speak Nahuatl, right? And uh, this was the first time that ICE came and there were people from ICE um, or uh, customs that came over to the college. I don't even remember like the entirety of the exchange, but then the people from North County came in and there was like long conversations why, you know, these, you know, ICE individuals were here on campus. And so we always had this like ability at Cal State San Marcos, at least to engage in, you know, discussions. Hey, why are these people here? You know, we're talking about this. So there might be some undocumented folk that are coming in to see the play. Why are you doing this? This is for the community. This is intentionally like to serve the students that have been marginalized, right? So I think that's what was the uniqueness of Cal State San Marcos in allowing that. And I think because um, 
Cal State San Marcos was founded in 1989. It was a relatively fair, fairly new campus when I was there. And it was growing, you know, because I, I went there from 2005 to 2015 with like gaps in between throughout my, my undergrad and master's degrees. And we didn't have a, the Latinx student center that they have now and all of the roundabout services that they have now with the student services center as a whole. But we did have a lot of resources and faculty, I will say, even though that they were faculty that they, you know, that I, we had very limited Latinx faculty, I will say, but it was also, we did have faculty that were very, you know, affirming to who we were, especially at least in the women's studies department. I really connected with a lot of the white, you know, faculty there, very problematic in ways too, right? It was also the first time I realized that I wasn't, you know, that I was othered, right? So it was, it always came in with some sort of backlash. It wasn't always pretty, right? But I think that that's the learning environment that was conducive to you understanding, oh, you don't just exist in the Valley. Because a lot of people, when I say the Valley, it's the Imperial County, not the Valley um, up North. But I think people, you know, have this notion and this concept of we don't leave the Valley and that's, that's how we stay. So when we're talking about growth and taking somebody out of the Valley to, you know, you're, you're also dealing with a larger environment, you know, different type of sub experiences and different types of discrimination, right? That I didn't even know. Like, this is the first time I had heard terminology being reflected towards me when I didn't hear it when I was in high school, right? But it was really, really um, an interesting environment. So HSI as a whole, um, it was just pictured differently. Sorry, I can go ahead. <laughs> well, it's really good because I, I, I think there's a lot of, reflexivity, right, in the journey of, of what does it mean to be an HSI or what is not an HSI. So maybe it was for me that part of, I came to know more of what it was when I was no longer in it and I experienced what, what was not an HSI. So for me, my undergrad was at Whittier and <clears throat> as I mentioned, I was super involved and a key component to understanding that I was HSI was because I worked at the Cultural Center, now known as the Office of Equity and Inclusion. But um, that space really started um, in 1968 by, uh, by Martin Ortiz, which was one of the first Latinos to graduate from Whittier College. And he started it as the Center for Mexican-American Affairs because of the lack of support for um, Latinx students, particularly Mexican students at that time, right? So to be in a space that was created like decades ago for like my existence, I came to understand what that meant later on once I worked within it, right? It was very intentional for, for our director and assistant director to really teach us the history of like, why does this space exist? Why do we do the programming that we do? And that's when I began to like, oh, we're an HSI. And I think for me, I just correlated to, we do events, we do cultural events. It didn't mean anything else beyond that, right? So I knew that we had Latinx graduation. I knew we had Tardeada during homecoming. I knew we had El Grito event during our Mexican Independence Day. And again, right, very Mexican-centric events. And then I knew, um, I would say those were it. So for me, uh, like, that's kind of like, oh, it, this is what it means to be HSI, we have events, and, right? And, and when I worked there, I also, that's when I got to see more Latinx students because most of my, my Latinx uh, classmates were commuters, except for me. So I lived on campus. So I was probably one of the only like Latinx folks in my whole residence hall. So when I went to the culture center, I'm like, oh, this is where we're all at. Like, this is it. So then that, because the commuters would like, that that was kind of their space. That was the, the place where they can be. So we created a lot of just um, kinship with one another. So that that's kind of how I understood like, oh, what is this? 
HSI mean, right? And when Tardiada happened, the president would come and give a speech, right? Because, you know, the op- now I understand the optics and what does it mean to have these grants and this designations uh, back then. So uh, there was definitely a, a right of a sense of like, oh, obviously this is something we should be proud of. So I didn't think like that it, at that time I was like, oh, okay, this is, this is it. I didn't know there was all these other things, right? Like now we, we have your typology, Dr. Garcia, and we recognize that there's so many other things that go into what being an HSI is. But at that point, that was my understanding. And um, making inclusive spaces for Latinx students was kind of like my big takeaway of what it was to be an HSI. And I really took that to heart as a student, as a student activist, right? Um, Yolanda mentioned Mecha. During my time at at Whittier, I was part of the group who revived Mecha, who had been inactive since the 80s. And we revived it because our facilities workers were being mistreated and not given like their lunch and ample space. So we let a walkout. (laughs) And that led to them being unionized and getting like an increase in their salary and things like that, right? So for me, I always had that spur, like, here's what it means to be a student in the HSI. I thought I connected to that for me. I went to grad school and in grad school, I was also at an HSI, did my master's at San Diego State University. Um, and for me, I would say there, I don't know if it was more present, but because our mascot's problematic and is an Aztec, I think there was a sense like, oh, we're an HS- we're like this HSI and we're next to the border. And it just seems like, it's just part of the entity, right? I'm like, okay. But also in grad school, I, I wasn't really um, infused in the fabric of the institution because I, I had uh, personal uh, like, uh, family things that I had to attend to where like I was actually commuting from LA to San Diego and back and forth so I didn't I was just literally go to school go to class go to my GA ship and go back so it wasn't such a thing that I was thinking through now when I first leave California for my first full-time job as a practitioner then all these things come back together for me right so going back to like oh well what is an HSI and what isn't so after I left California I worked at pretty much predominantly white institutions right so at PWIs I knew it was a PWI I was like oh this is what not an HSI is got it right um the the there's very minimal visibility there's no really support there's no conversations around right Latinx students their retention their success so for me that's kind of like where the consciousness really comes into play as you mentioned of oh why is that right like questioning why is it that at a PWI these things are not important or valued versus and thinking through like oh did I have it okay then right because thinking about the students that I was serving now and because I was one of the only Latinx staff members, right, I became the advisor for the Latinx student org and we created that and we hosted our first ever Latinx um, history, uh, history month. So all these things that had never happened, right? And it really got me to think like, we have to do so much more. And I think that's where like, I began to think about what are things that are in HSI and what aren't. And then even within HSI, right? What is things that we still need to continue to do? And that really emerges from my time um, as a practitioner and then um, starting the doc program where I really dive more into uh, your scholarship, right, Dr. Garcia, like a, a lot of your scholarship and um, really thinking through, yeah, what is this, what does this entity mean? What does this designation mean? How does it manifest? How does it materialize to real implications for the communities that we say that we are in for? Awesome. Thank you all for that, for sharing your stories, um, your servingness journeys, right? And we're all still on these servingness journeys, right? Like consciousness around anything, of course, is a journey that we we carry on. Um, but I feel like we're like soul siblings, like the three of us, like we all have like these same similar sort of paths, like 
the undergraduate experience felt like an HSI because that's my story too. Like I connect with that, right? That y'all are talking about, there's a feeling, right? Or programming, right? Dr. Gonzalez, you're talking about like the, the program, that's HSI, right? I agree, but it's not sufficient. It's not enough, right? Um, and we know that, but um, there were programs or feelings or we could eat carne asada on campus or there were Cesar Chavez statues or whatever, right? Like those sort of, that feeling of HSI, it matters. It does matter because as you noted, Angel, when you leave, that's not everywhere. <laughs> Believe me, when I got to the University of Pittsburgh, I'm like, oh, hell, this is like the whitest place ever, right? Like, what is this space? I don't, I don't even know what this is, right? Like, this is foreign to me. I don't understand what, how this is even a, a thing in the United States, right? Because I had never experienced it. Um, so, so thank you all for sharing your stories. And I'm just feeling like, oh, yes, you know, that feeling matters. Um, but then, of course, we, we all then get critical. <laughs> then, we, then we went to graduate programs and got a little more critical about well, what is it? <laughs> this, this is, it's got to be more than a feeling. A feeling can't be, an, it's, it's insufficient, right? Um, but it's essential, Right. And so that's why I love y'all stories and, and love that the, the listeners get to hear that, because it is an essential piece that if you're uh, if you're undergraduate students at an HSI or, or graduating and not having these stories that we have and saying it, it felt like it, even if I didn't know, then you're probably not an HSI. Right. It's, it's one of the many indicators. Um, so thank you all, all for that. But let's go ahead and get a little bit deeper into like, what are, what is it HSI, right? I want to talk about that. And, um, and I'm going to jump into to the articles y'all wrote, right? Y'all wrote a couple articles um, about servingness for Latinx LGBTQIA plus students. And I want, I like to think I know all the HSI research. I try, I try my best. And I think y'all twos are like the only articles that are purely centered on this intersection, right? Of like Latinx and LGBTQIA plus queer students, right? Um, so it's really exciting to know that y'all are doing that work. Um, and I, and I, I dove into it. Believe me, I, I, I'm pretty sure I became an, a member of the Alliance of HSI Educators just so I could download y'all's um, article because you got to be a member. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, let me just be a member because I, I hadn't paid my membership. <laughs> And here I'm with the director here. The, the director is like, ah, oh, Gina. I <laughs> but I downloaded it. I mean, I, I paid my membership to download y'all's article. Okay, that's how important um, it, it is, the research that y'all are doing. Okay, so um, so let's talk about those articles, right? That, that The work that y'all are, were, are doing around these intersections, right? These intersectional identities. Um, and, and talk to me couple about a couple things um you know the motivation um also y'all are doing this work in community colleges so let's bring that in um about like why is it in, in the community college space um what is your motivation for doing this work and looking really doing environmental scans of, of the the resources um available for students who are at these intersections of identity um and and why it's important why, why do we need to do intersectional work at hsis um, when we get to doing this research I'll start by saying just like a little bit about our journey. So Angel and I met at the in the doc program. And I think prior to us coming into the doc program, right, like I had been exposed to your work, Dr. Garcia, you know, in my previous working at San Diego Mesa College. And so for me to have seen you already through the work that I was already doing. And so I was already building on my HSI and is working at several community colleges in different capacities, right, in serving directly 
um, in, in creating these programs, right? Setting the foundations for Title III and Title V grants, as well as like the research aspect and building um, with faculty, programs, services, training students on how to, you know, interpret data and bring in like a quality amount of services, servingness through the evidence-based practices, right? So we think about that practice piece. But I think when I started to learn more about the work that you did in terms of decolonization, right? I've never like truly understand, understood the profoundness and the impact of that from a racialized lens, right? So when Angel and I met in the program, right? And mind you, it was like the first semester, we barely knew each other and it was like one night <laughs> and Angel was traveling from Seattle and we were kicking it at my spot in San Diego. And we were talking about this work because we knew from the get-go, I think it was funny how we both kind of came into the program. I was telling, you know, the group, I want to work on HSIs. I don't know yet what, you know, component, what I could add to it. Cause your work is really Dr. Garcia on that racialized lens, or at least at that point, you know, it had been really harnessed on that. And I was like, there's gotta be more than that. And then we had really interesting conversations, Angela and I, and you could obviously share a little bit more, but one night we were both like, no, like it has to be more. We were researching articles and articles and there was a dearth of research, right? When it comes to specifically posing questions about, you know, not just, um, you know, Latinidad as a whole, but then like, how do you enter the intersection, right? I always say the multiplicity of identities, right? And what does that look like for the landscape of community colleges? And we were doing that research, right? Because our focus um, in the program was with the specialization of community colleges. So when we think about this work, when we think about the importance of it, we're like, that's it, that's it. And so we're talking about the research. We were looking at different places that had already done certain, you know, research. And so we were trying to do an environmental scan. And I think we were learning about that methodology in class or we're trying to, you know, because even within our classes, it was a little bit difficult to understand the different methods without throwing shade. But <laughs> it was yes, yes, yes. I understand as a, as a professor of, of many things. <laughs> so it, was really, it was really interesting having to learn this. But in that one night, right, we were both like, this is it. Like, let's collaborate. And Angel was like, Yolanda, I think this is where we could lead. And I think that process in and of itself. And I want to also share this with like first generation uh, students who are doing this publication had it not been for Angel, you know, helping me navigate this terrain that was so unfamiliar to me, like publishing at that point, mind you, I'm in a doc program. And I know that publishing for me was very new. I didn't know what, you know, editing a piece reviews meant. I mean, just the entirety of the process going through it within an EDDD program. And so that's something important to know too, from this podcast is important for them to recognize that PhD students, you know, are afforded a lot more time to publish, right, where we're going 100% past space through our coursework while also working on our dissertation. And then Ankel and I were doing the most trying to do this publication because we felt so, you know, because at that point, too, you know, we were dealing with it too within our identities, right? Ankel, I was just also like trying to figure out what my identity was. So it was very much this was like a, a love project. I can't even say it any more than what it was. Like we literally put our heart into this work and saying, we know this is needed. And I know this doesn't exist. And I think that was really what drove this research. But I'll stop there. Thank you. Uh, well, I just love that. Thank you so much. Like, uh, it's so true, right? It, it is a labor of love. And I think a lot of our work 
as scholars for minoritized identities and it is hard work, right? And it really came from that. It really came from this overlapping interest in our research um, at that point, like our, re our research topic for our dissertations, right? I, I explored uh, what Latinx uh, leadership looks like at community colleges and creating a Latinx leadership framework where the X in Latinx really centers the racial ethnic identity at the intersections of Korean trans identities. And within that, right, like recognizing, well, that's directly tied into, you know, HSI and like serving this and like, what does that mean for Latinx leaders? And both Yolanda and I were like Latinx leaders. So we were like really, again, like having those conversations about self within these larger constructs, within these institutions. So that really got us to like, let's put it out there, why not? And she says like, thanks to me, I'm like, girl, I was figuring it out too. I was like, okay, let's just submit here, let's do that. And, and again, right, like filing guidance from, from, from femtors and mentors, right? Uh, we both are our dissertation here, Dr. Marisa Vasquez, shout out to her, um, you know, telling us do this. And maybe she, you know, couldn't walk us through everything because, you know, again, as a woman of color in the academy, she's probably trying to survive. And us just taking it and be like, okay, she told us to look at this. Let's look at it. Can we do it? Yes, no. And I think that's really where this began um, in doing these, these articles and researching these topics, the overlap of our interests, but also our identities and our lived experiences. So for that first article, that environmental scan was really just like, what is out there, like based on, on this region, right? Because we just looked at, at specific, in particular, we looked at those community colleges who were part of what was called the um, the the Southern, Southern Consortium for Hispanic Serving Institutions in California. And I don't know if it exists anymore, but it was like some institutions in Southern California said, we're gonna create like this group of us who are HSIs. And they had a database and they had like a kind of a, a report of, services and things they were doing. And so we, we went through it and analyzed it. And that's when we saw like, well, there was literally out of the 14 community college that participated in this consortium at that time, zero of them mentioned anything particularly intersecting with Korean trans identities and Latinx uh, identities. One noted a Latinx resource center. I mean, uh, one noted a queer resource center and then um, zero Latinx resource centers at the time. And that's not to say then that the queer center was doing racial ethnic emphasis work for queer and trans students. So that's really where we got to like, there's really nothing that people are doing. And if it's, it is, it's not institutionalized, right? And that's the issue. It's like, if it is, it's coming for the goodness of the one person who is the queer person of color, who is also the advisor, because that's often what happens to me in most of my work is I lead this work in an unofficial capacity. And what happens when I leave? This all is gone for the students. And that's where the institutionalization of it comes into place that really drove us to think about, well, with grants and the policies and things like that, what can we provide practitioners to think through as they're going in the grant writing process in the implementation of these grant monies that could get them to think about queer and trans students at the center, not as other beyond like the racial ethnic identity of Latinx students because we're not silo, right? We don't exist in this one identity, we exist in so many. So I think that's really where, where, where our our idea to to dive into this research collaboratively and, and then the multiple pieces. Well, I mean, it's only two at this point. We have one more coming up, but um, started for us in exploring it. And um, and again, Yolanda is like, I, I tell her she's the one doing this work. I mean, her dissertation is going to be so transformative, right? As an empirical piece that's really diving into 
the the historias, the las voces, right? The histories and and and, and voices of, of of these students. I think that's going to be powerful. I agree, absolutely, one hundred percent. Thank you for saying that. We'll we'll, we'll get to her dissertation too. Um, but thank you for uh, thank you for being so real first about like um, being doc students and not knowing how to publish because I think people think that like. I don't know that you just like are born knowing it or something. I don't know. You come out the womb knowing, knowing how to publish articles and like you just don't, right? Like I've published many and I was in that same space, right? Of like as a grad student, like what the heck, how do you do this, right? Like trying to figure it out. So thank you for being really transparent about that because we need to acknowledge that publishing is not easy and we're often not taught really how to do it, right? Um, and it is hard, but I think y'all y'all did such a great, like like started with something that was manageable. You know, you did this environmental scan to see like, do, you know, do people even mention um, the intersections of, of Latinx and queer and trans identities, right? And, you know, from it, what I what I know, and Angel, you sort of alluded to it, was that basically, no, right? HSIs are not thinking about these intersections at all, right? Not in their grant work and not in their general operating um, procedures at all, right? That's, that's if I had to sum up y'all's articles, that that's the takeaway. <laughs> um, and so please correct me if I'm wrong, if there's some other sort of takeaway. Um, but if y'all want to talk a little bit more about that, and then also because this podcast is intended to be knowledge sharing and, and supporting people who are on the ground doing um, the work, what what do we need to do better, right? Like from y'all research, because part of research, and I'm, I'm very practitioner driven, is like there's the research and then there's like, now what do we do in practice? Because it doesn't mean anything just sitting in an article that you can't even access half the time, right? Like nobody can even access it. So, you know, feel free to add in any other key takeaways from the articles, but but what, what do you want practitioners who are listening to do? But I think that's a really loaded question, right? I think if you take a look back, right? I think the beautiful thing about creating something that we created, right, was really from the viewpoint of like Ankit shared, right? It's our experiences, right? It's our positionality as students. That's a privilege, right? Because we're also get, we're afforded, you know, the space, the critical um, thought and the exchange to have access to people like each other, right? That are in the same space and the same, you know, environment. And, and that can't be said enough because when you kind of get out of that, I'll tell you kind of now the lens of like the administrator hat that I wore for two years at IBC. Um, it's like, it's very difficult even to go through the racialized component, right? So now let's go now to the actual community college and say, you're at a community college that is an HS, it's an HSI. But then as an administrator, for example, you have all of these priorities, right? An infinite amount of initiatives that you have to take care of, funding pockets that you have to provide, right? So when we think about programs and services, you're looking at, there's mandates from the chancellor's office, there's mandates from like local, and then there's all these needs from like the community, right? So you're gauging macro, micro, like at different waves, right? And impacts, COVID in and of itself, right? Funding that came through COVID through CARES Act and et cetera, et cetera, created also an amount, an, an amount of challenges within like that practice piece. So when we think about just serving this as a whole, right, the policy in and of itself doesn't afford anything. And this is the complexity 
it gives you the flexibility, right, to do what you can through the Title III and Title V funding sources. But it doesn't mean that we know as, you know, practitioners, as people doing the work on how to engage in different environments, pockets. And then it also depends who's at the helm, right? So if it is a person, for example, that is a director that understands HSI from having attended, for example, ASI at a conference, who has the network, has the capacity to understand your work, for example, Dr. Garcia, that's a person that is leveraging resources, that is making connections with other people outside that can, you know, have even that network to say, hey, I'm having trouble with my cabinet, ask them for resources. How do I institutionalize my program after the funding is done? Something like that. But if you're bringing in a faculty, for example, who's only been in the classroom and now has, is taken over this grant, right? Very difficult, very, very difficult. And what I have found in my research is that in, in, in also in difference to like, you know, research one institutions or universities that have more resources, we don't have the resources. So when we say it's easy for us to criticize, you know, community colleges and say, why aren't you doing more? Why don't you have centers that cater to LGBTQ plus identities and communities, et cetera, et cetera. Well, let's talk about evidence, right? It wasn't until 2018 that the chancellor's office decided to collect data on students, right? And it's very limited data. We're working on the California Community Colleges application to even begin to ask questions. And then we get feedback from the community stating that list is already, that application is already robust. Why are you asking questions? But, so all of these things that maybe, you know, universities already have in place, have set in motion, to already have these approved, we're 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 far beyond, you know, behind. We were afforded, you know, recently a one-time pocket of funding in the amounts possibly of fifteen thousand dollars to each, you know, college. Again, it's very easy to throw money at the problem, but then you're not providing any direction. They're like, oh, do you fifteen thousand dollars? You have a one-time funding, and we don't know if the funding is going to come back. What are you supposed to do with fifteen thousand dollars? And they're like, make it work through it. Do you know? do it through professional development. Um, so I do a training on like the use of pronouns. So it's very easy, right? To say, there's gotta be some connection. There's gotta be this, right? But when you don't have, you know, the understanding, right? From even the racialized component. And I think this speaks volumes of your work, Dr. Garcia, that multi-conceptual framework in and of itself, the external factors, right? The internal factors, white supremacy, right? In the foundations of, you know, the work of HSIs, let alone that in and of itself is incredible to think about the structures of servingness, right? That's already a problem. Bringing the component of LGBTQ plus identities at the forefront, and it just complicates it even more, right? When we say queering of HSIs for Ankel and I, I mean, think about it. It's such a westernized language as well, right? We critique our work too, because como se dice queer in español, right? Like, <laughs> it's difficult for us too. Like, we're experiencing, like, understanding facets and where students are at. And students are very smart. Administrators and faculty need to be where the students are at. Like, I have students at students left and right who already understood where they were at. It was the faculty and the administration that didn't know where they were at. So it's so many variables, right? And there's so many things thrown at you. So I kind of want to give a shout out to all the practitioners in community colleges for just surviving um, because it is a lot and particularly those of color 
and partic particularly those that have compounded of identities, right? Because it is difficult to be, at least even in my end, and I, I said this, you know, recently in, a, in another research study that is coming up, um, being queer, openly queer, also an administrator and being at those higher levels and higher tiers of administration is gains, gives you a lot of visibility, but it also is very threatening to say the least. And um, so that's not easy. You need to provide, you know, sources of protections within to support, you know, high, high levels of visibility when you have people like that. You want to talk about courageous leadership. You also need to think about how do we protect people of color um, and people that have, you know, different identities at the margin. So I'll stop there. I didn't know we was going to church. You just preaching over there, like so many layers of so many things that you just share with us. So thank you. <laughs> Dr. Gonzalez, are you going to add to that? <laughs> I don't even remember the question. <laughs> that, that was about what I was about to say. I was like, wait, where are we? No. The only thing I do know is when she mentioned the, 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 the multi-conceptual model dimensions of, of of HSI serving is that 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 one really is I think she was hitting that for me where it's like yeah right it's those external internal factors in the contributions to the outcomes of whatever serving this looks like right so it, it is all these different pieces all these layers which makes it so hard to execute serving this right like I, I think that is an ongoing um action that we're trying to accomplish when you are this designation type because of I mean, right, you have it as, as, as a white supremacy as the underlying layer to it, right? And um, as it pertains to, you know, intersections of identity with queer and trans Latinx students, whiteness mediates everything, right? It's still very much what mediates is heterogenderism and is heteropatriarchy. So it's the things that still mediates racism and racialized experiences. So when we think about the both and it's just a compounded experience that then needs an, a multitude of solutions. The same way that like, you know, when we're trying to target one or the other, it's complex. And I think that's the part where, you know, our articles and our work, and I'm sure your work, right? It, they're ongoing. It's never, it's never concluded, right? Even though we have these conclusions in these articles, I, I always remind myself and our readers that it's a moment of time and space of our thought process, right? And then knowledge production is ongoing. If we really want to move towards liberatory praxis, that we have to continue to question it and grow from it. Because um, just like us, right, when we had these articles around, like, oh, what's missing? And we just had, oh, this is missing. But then here comes, you know, Yolanda, or all these other things that are still like the complexities of these, right? It is a reminder that there, there is no um, simple solution, I think, in, in, in addressing this work. Absolutely. I'm going to stop making it so simple. I just tell people like do better. <laughs> Yolanda just told me it's not that easy. <laughs> and it's not right. That's the, the reality. And, and y'all keep bringing back the model and like the external influences and the white supremacy. But the reality is, if if I redo that model, which I'm sure I will, if y'all want to be collaborators, it's white supremacy, it's Christian supremacy, it's it's heteronormativity. I mean, it's patriarchy. Like there's so many layers 
and everything y'all are talking about, all those other systems are are, are coming into play, right? Um, when we're talking about intersections of, of Latinx and queer and trans identities, like all of those systems, um, although, you know, Angel, as you alluded to, we know white supremacy is sort of this overarching system that sort of <laughs> intersects all of them at the same time. Um, so thank you all. Thank you all for that, for that complexity. Um, one thing I did want to ask y'all about, and Yolanda, you, you um, alluded to this, is data. And I mean, people, people, they like to make data-driven decisions. That's real. We know people are like, we need data to make decisions, particularly high-level administrators. And so it seems difficult to say you should center queer, trans, LGBTQIA students when we lack the data to even show their needs, right? So what are y'all's thoughts on that is like, how do we do better? How do we, you know, even if we are lacking data, still advocate for doing this work because it's the right thing to do? Um, and 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 what are those inequities that that we're not seeing in the data because we're, we don't have the adequate data, right? Like, are the graduation rates for uh, LGBTQIA students lower, right? Are they more likely to leave? Are they more likely to, to not be retained? Are they more likely to be housing insecure or food insecure? Like, we don't have solid data for those, I don't think. Um, so speak to that, the data. How do we justify doing this work when people want data to, to justify the work? So people need to understand this is this is kind of then goes back to then the work that we did right it's so and I just had this conversation with uh, two great individuals in um where I'm from and we had this conversation about look we were trying to provide services we did to LGBTQ communities how did you do that we put a flag up you know in our hospitals and that was like I'm like okay and they were like we wanted to celebrate during you know pride month and bring this group, this group, right, that was going to come and speak, you know, to um, this important, you know, piece um, within the county. And I was like, well, do you understand how difficult it must be for them to have that visibility? So when we think about data, you have to understand the lived narrative of queer and trans folk when it comes to just these pockets of higher education. So if I'm questioning my identity, right? If I don't even understand the terminology that is being brought. So when we say, for example, I didn't know cis, I didn't know what cis heteronormativity meant until I was in my doc program. I didn't understand what queer meant. And then queer has so many different connotations that can be both negative and positive. It's like, I remember I learned about being Chicana and Chicano in college because in Mexicali, like I was Mexican. So I didn't know what that meant. Again, these terminologies, right? we learn them in pockets of higher education. They exist within the, these pockets, right? So you think about the complexities of terminology and then identity, right? You know, being gay, being queer, lesbian, trans, what does a trans experience look like? If you're questioning it, if you're depending on where you're at in the spectrum of, you know, LGBTQ plus identity as a whole, it's very difficult to capture data. And what we're asking is to trust a system that didn't even provide us a space to begin with and you want us to tell you who we are and you just want us to show up what are again and then once we even provide that evidence piece it's still limited so you're giving me again fifteen thousand dollars to do the work what is that going to do for me after i've already given you you know so the evidence piece yes is it critical yes do i think it's important especially from my end and my lens again as an administrator and as a person as a practitioner higher you do want to have that. 
but I do think that it has to have some qualitative aspect or some kind of other piece that has to be accounted for in addition to the numbers, quote unquote, because that does take away from the lived narrative. It has to kind of coexist with each other in fluidity and allowing you know, us to exist in a way that's not threatening to us because we're already at high visibility and in threats. We think about the political environment that also impacts like currently what's going on with the, with the overturn of Roe versus Wade, right? Like this is crucial. Like when it comes to the work, we've been impacted in various ways based off of political decisions. And now we're coming into politics within higher ed, very threatening too. So do I think there's a space for data? Yes. Do I think it's needed? Yes. Do we have to be careful and intentional in the way that what we do with it? And then more importantly, what are we going to say when we say we're going to do something with the data that we actually do it and it doesn't stay stagnant and we don't make false promises to our students and our community? Yeah, um, you know, I, I would echo some of those points around the need of data, specifically in the quant side. Um, uh, that's an area that I think in, in queer and trans research is, is growing and, and always a contested space because um, quant method as a whole is very white supremacist as its foundations, right? And there's a lot of critical quant scholars who engage in this work. Um, um, right now, I'm part of the University of Vermont queer and trans um, uh, educators <clears throat> kind of uh, program. And we're diving into uh, critical quant and right talking about, you know, Rios Aguilar's concepts around the changing context of critical quantitative inquiry. And then, you know, Jay Garvey talking about then queer quant and like bringing those notions of how do we even begin to collect the data when the metrics and foundations of these metrics in place are rooted in white supremacy and cis-heteronormativity because they have settler colonial foundations that depend on static classification of othering. So what do we do with that when queer and trans identities in particular are very fluid and they're not, right, they're not fixed identities. So for a student like myself, when I started undergrad, I didn't identify as queer. I didn't know who I was. I didn't know how I identified. So if there was a classification, I would have still put straight, right, because I didn't know, or heterosexual, because I didn't know what I mean. But by the time I finished, that might shift. So then even that, right, these one-time kind of pockets of data collecting are, are challenging to really give an, an idea of what's going on. However, as, as Yolanda was mentioning it, is needed, right? We need to have a pulse of what is the climate for these students in a way that we can materialize into resource allocation. Because I understand that qualitative research is needed as a qualitative research myself, but I think from a, like a policy standpoint and like stakeholders who make these large scale decisions, numbers talk. And where we are not quantified, then we miss a piece of the pie. Right? We really don't get the resources needed to carry out the work in a way that really manifests into these improved experiences and conditions, experiences, and outcomes for current trans students who also hold these intersecting identities. And it's a challenging time, right? Because we're pushing more data collection. We want to be more inclusive. We want to have um, you know, uh, more data that, that captures this. But it's hard, right? When we think about right now in, in, in 2022, according to the American Civil Liberties Union, um, the annual number of anti-LGBTQ bills skyrocketed from 41 bills in 2018 to 238 uh, bills in 2022, right? So what does that mean 
when we're saying we want to support students, so tell me who they are so we can easily identify you. But then the reality is that our livelihoods are at, at the line, right, literally. And we've seen it with what just happened last week. And it, it, it is this kind of contested point because it's a, it's a layer of protection to not be able to identify folk, but then that shouldn't be... Um, that, that, that should not be the reason why we're not getting what we need to then have like better experiences in our institutions, right? Um, so it, it is a, a very, I think, complex, um, nuanced kind of issue with the data, um, disaggregating the data and collecting data that we need because um, of what's happening, right? Um, I wish we could just collect it and just have it and assume the goodness of people, but we don't live in those times, right? And I think that's the the, the challenging part. Now, I do want to own that both uh, Yolanda and I are in California, and we're really well, like in this work, right? Um, um, that we do is California centric, and that's really privileged, right? We have a lot of protections that a lot of states don't have, so we can even begin to have these conversations. So when we're pushing this, we want to contextualize the region in which we find ourselves doing this work because it matters, right? Um, I've worked in, in Washington and California, and that's very different. And some things are better, some things are worse, right? Like in Washington, for example, Washington State, they do have data collection metrics for the, the Washington State Community College system since 20, for a while, right? Since I think 2018, 2017. Um, and that's more robust than the CC apply version of it, right? Um, but then California, when we think about students, right? Out of the 2.1 million students that they serve, over 44% of them are Latinx. Now they have, right, a lot of work from the racial equity standpoint in regards to the student equity plans, AB705, student guided pathways, and they're putting in monies, millions of dollars to eradicate equity gaps for these students, right? So again, it, it's, it's, this, it's this very intricate kind of, um, you know, reality of, of, of the, the conditions for the students that we're in to serve that, um, that ultimately have to do all right, with the foundations of these systems as a whole. That's why none of these one solutions are working because the foundations are the same. And now we're not digging into the actual issues at hand, but I'll stop there because now I'm just like rambling. <laughs> now you took over. Now we, we went back to church again. Woo! Y'all are just dropping so much knowledge. And like, I love that y'all are bringing in the intricacies of like the region, right? Because I think about that too, like, Florida HSI listening right now, practitioners in Florida are like, well, it sounds easy for y'all in California, right? So to name like, hey, in California, we have a little more privilege and like a Florida who decided they were going to launch this bills, like don't say gay bills and everybody started to follow, right? Um, that matters. That matters that where you're doing this work, obviously, right? And data, like you said, data uh, collection systems are, are better in some states and others when it comes to, to being able to actually serve students at the intersections. Um, so thank you for that. And thank you for uh, even the policy Dr. Gonzalez is dropping like the actual policy names and everything over here, um, which is is important, right? Because to your um, former point about like, I thought serving this was like programs on campus, right? If we have like Hispanic Heritage Month and, you know, whatever, the, the two or three, you know, uh, Latinx graduation, then we're an HSI. No, if you don't understand the complexities of the region you're in, the policies, the data collection me metrics around servingness and around serving students at the intersections, you're not an HSI, right? Yay for your program. 
do the programs, but it's so much deeper, right? It's so much more complex and y'all are, are bringing that all to light. So, so thank you for that. Ooh, I could ask y'all questions all day, um, but you know, we're going to have to start to wrap up. So I do want to know, um, Angel, you did mention that y'all have another article coming out and soon to be Dr. Cataño is about to defend a dissertation around this topic. So if y'all want to share any, um, any tidbits or any advertisements of what's to come for your new fans that are listening are like, Ooh, I want to follow these scholars because they're doing really important work. Um, what's, what's next coming out of coming out of the lab. Yeah. So a piece that should be coming out this year is an about campus piece. Um, and it's kind of like a pulse point um, piece that really highlights, you know, practitioners think about collecting data. It's called uh, querying the query for Hispanic serving institutions, community colleges. And it's really the way, uh, it's a way for, for practitioners to start thinking about what can they do if, you know, at a larger systemic level, we're not having systems to collect this data. What about in your area in collaboration with IR institutional research, right? Um, thinking about that when, you know, HSI directors do their programming, they might have, you know, capture oh, give me the list from enrollment services of all those students who self-identified as Latinx so we can target them for, right, for, for programs and services. And then when they do that, can you also attach a different questionnaire around, like, because of this, we also want to know what other areas of support might you need and include maybe in there, right, uh, a survey uh, around queer and trans identities to capture, oh, maybe we need to be doing, and they should, right, be doing more uh, intersectional program and services. So uh, that queering the query piece will be coming out hopefully soon. And and again, that one's like a, a really brief seven pager, I think. So um, a lot of our work, if you notice, is geared towards practitioners and, and on these open access spaces for the most part, because um, we want the people doing the work to be able to have access to it, right? Um, obviously, we'd sit with more theoretical pieces and think through that, um, and, and we're brainstorming some more, more of that work. But I, I think the, the practice-based pieces are super important because, um, you know, our practitioners are, are asking for it. Like, what can we do? And, and you said it, right? Like, do good work. And, and sometimes it is simple, right? We know that there's these broader systems, and that could be overwhelming. And it is like, what can I do in the everyday with what I have? from where I'm at to make a change. And I'm hopeful that those are the things that people can take away sometimes uh, as we talk about these broader, right, foundations uh, of these like uh, horrible institutions, even the community college, right? Even though they're these seen as these access points, right? The foundations are still the same, white cis men for white cis men. And we need to remember that that is embedded in the hegemonic practices of leadership and the policies at play at community colleges. So even though it's not the four year, it's still very much rooted in similar foundations. So that could be a lot, but also ultimately the takeaway should be do good work. So hopefully the, this about uh, campus piece and creating the creative provides um, areas of, of inquiry for folks to think about how they can collect data and engage in that um, for um, queer and transatlantic students. Yes. And then I think building off of that, you know, it's looking at, you know, like my dissertation, for me, it was looking at the self, you know, experiences of self-identified, you know, Latinx LGBTQ plus students, you know, enrolled at California Community College HSIs. So it's really going back that qualitative piece that I was mentioning earlier is looking at the data that already is existing from the chancellor's office, but then bringing that qualitative piece and really making sure that the voice um, resonates, you know, with a lot of the practitioners. And I think what's next, Dr. Garcia, I think I've been afforded now a platform, a national platform. And I think 
in being the inaugural. I know I'm excited. Yes. <laughs> and a shout out to the Alliance of Hispanic Serving Institution Educators and being the inaugural executive director, I take it with extreme pride and I'm very humbled by this opportunity. And I'm really looking forward to building more collaborations and looking at what we can do to improve, you know, what we currently offer for our practitioners. Um, and then partnering with the Department of Ed to look at how we can utilize what they're already working on, look at what we're currently doing at, what professional development opportunities can arise from having this very, these very fruitful discussions. We've already started those um, with Beatriz Seja and we're really excited about what that could look like. We're also working with, you know, people with the likes of you, Dr. Gina Garcia and Escala to name others, you know, and it's, it's really um, a very cool environment to look at how all of these pieces kind of come together. Excellency in education with our data institutes, right? Very, very important. There's already data that exists out there. How do we bring this connection? How do we have practitioners understand data, report data, for example, um, and then build off of these programs and services based off what we find. And so I'm really looking forward to what this next year has to do, not just to build ASI, but then to continue the work that we have done in terms of the publications. I also worked with um, Dr. Marla Franco and Dr. Adrian to talk about um, what we're doing with the HSIs at Research One institutions, the Latinx intentionality and the LGBTQ plus intentionality. So really now going above and beyond looking at, you know, the experiences of students and then experiences of, you know, other leaders across the campus and then in different institutional types. So I'm really excited just to, you know, advance these works and these efforts um, in working with other practitioners and other individuals who are experts in the field. So really, really excited. Thank you for dropping all the, that commercial about your national work that you're doing, because um, the research is a big deal. And the research that y'all doing is so important. And so thank you for sharing what is to come, because I'm glad there's more to come. And I know you're going to write from your dissertation as well about what you're finding, right, with um, with queer um, and trans uh, LGBTQIA Latinx students. Um, that's important, but taking it to a national level, right? To, a, to an organization like AC or, or Excellency in Education, the Department of Ed, that's, that's where, where, where research actually informs practice and policy, how powerful. Um, so thank you for doing that work. I'm so excited to have you um, leading us, AC, and also the president, also um, queer identified, right? Um, Dr. Uh, Paloma Vargas. Um, how amazing to have women, femmes, queer, you know, Latinx, Latina, Latine people leading these organizations. I think that's an important piece too, right? If we can talk about all these different things we're talking about, we're talking about policy, we're talking about regions, we're talking about those things, but also who's leading us, right? And so that is so important that like the leaders, right, that are that are taking some of these really important leadership roles um, are also being really intentional in these intersections, um, guided even by their by y'all's own identities, you know? So, so thank you, I love that. So as we wrap up, the final question, since the podcast is, is called Que Pasa HSIs, I want y'all to go ahead and think, if you had to answer that in one sentence or two sentences, how would you say, how would you, you answer the question, Que Pasa HSIs? 
I think that's a really great question. I don't, you know, I think when it comes to que pasa with HSIs, I think it's also looking at, you know, beyond the practitioner's lens también, it's how do we invite other people to the HSI piece? Like, you know, que pasa HSIs with HBCUs, you know, and other minority serving institutions, because there's also like this other connectivity that we haven't really tapped into, or at least I feel like we haven't tapped enough is how do these pockets of like funding and also like the multi, again, multiplicity of identities that we hold, right? I had this incredible conversation the other day um, with a woman who's doing research on HBCUs, but they are also an HSI. So que pasa HSI is with, you know, now with having multiple, you know, identities within and whose priority and then how that posits us like against each other one more time. But then at the same time, you know, it can help us like build connections, right? And I think this is such a unique opportunity right now for HSIs to also flourish. We also have an opportunity with all of the emerging HSIs. And it's exciting to see, you know, the work now that we have been a little bit more established since its foundation. And I think this is where we can really start to navigate this new terrain. You mentioned food and housing insecurities. You talk about creating some kind of roundabout services for students. And I think this is the way that we can really capitalize on what is currently now readily available, but then what we can do to become, you know, more visionaries, you know, push the needle forward in terms of what we see and take a deep dive into even our own experiences, right? We talked about it at the beginning of this, um, how the, the experiences that we hold are very in tune of like how we bring ourselves to the work. So I think that's the next step. It's looking at those connections with other services. To go off of that, que pasa HSIs? Que pasa once again with your current Translatinx students? What's happening with them? Tell us. Que pasa with your differently abled Latinx students and what are you doing with them? Que pasa with your undocumented students and what are you doing with them? Que pasa with your Afro-Latinx students? What are you doing with them, right? Um, Dr. Pirtle at Awe wrote a piece around, I didn't know what anti-Blackness was until I got here, the unmet needs of Black students at Hispanic serving institutions, right? So what's going on there? So I think, right, they're, they're, everything we spoke about here and the querying of it, and, and, and I want to note it because when Butler and like queerists, queer theorists at, speak to queer theory, is always the act of becoming or in the process of. Right. So when we speak of querying HSIs, yes, we're centering these experiences, but I'm hopeful that it opens the door for people to start questioning all these other intersecting identities, right, at the intersections of a racial ethnic identity, right, because for so long it's just been that. It's just been the racialized piece. It's just been us as um, racialized individuals because we're not a race. So now what does it mean to overlap that with all the other identities that we've always had and try to get into that and address that and um, wrestle with those problems and also the amazing potential opportunities that exist in there. She said one sentence. <laughs> you should tell yourself that. You gave me like about a two minute paragraph. <laughs> no, I was just thinking. <laughs> Oh, I love it. We got to go back and forth with each other here. Um, 
both of those responses, I love it because it's exactly that. Like, there's a lot we can say what's going on with HSIs and everything y'all talked about is, is what's going on with HSIs, both in practice and policy and, and research. Um, but y'all, y'all posed what needs to happen. Right. And I love that. So, so thank you for your, with your long winded, uh, paragraphs versus one sentence. <laughs> I just kidding. I love it. Thank you both for being here with me today. I enjoyed every minute of this and I hope our listeners will um, will enjoy it and, and got a lot um, out of today. So thank you. Thank you both for, for spending time with me today. Thank you, Dr. Garcia. It is an honor, honestly, our honor to have been invited for this podcast and we look forward to the future contributions. Thank you. Sí, gracias so much.